0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the case the Supreme Court takes up on Tuesday that will kill any proposed wealth taxes before they even exist and further weaken the government's ability to collect revenues from the wealthy and powerful as dynastic wealth from the inheritors of billions now surpasses the wealth created by the entrepreneurial billionaires who created the fortunes. Joining us is Chuck Collins, a senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies, where he directs the program on inequality and co-edit's inequality.org. He's the author of Born on Third Base, A One Percenter Makes the Case for Tackling Inequality, Is Inequality in America Irreversible? And his latest book is The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions. Then we'll examine a proposed ban on, quote, those who expose or tolerate anti-Semitism, pro-Nazi sympathies, or Holocaust denial, which was rejected by the Texas Republican Party's executive committee that was to be included in a resolution Saturday to support Israel in its war with Hamas in Gaza. Joining us is Robert Downen a reporter at the Texas Tribune covering democracy and the threats to it, including extremism, disinformation, and conspiracies. We'll discuss his latest article at the Texas Tribune, Texas GOP Executive Committee Rejects Proposed Ban on Associating with Nazi Sympathizers and Holocaust Deniers. Then finally, we'll speak with Timothy Canova, who is a professor of law and public finance at Nova Southeastern University College of Law in Florida, who was an early critic of financial deregulation and warned of the dangers of the bubble economy. He was appointed by Senator Bernie Sanders to serve on an advisory committee on Federal Reserve Reform, and we'll discuss the exploding scandal in Florida that has Governor Ron DeSantis asking his friend Christian Ziegler the chair of Florida's GOP, to step down due to sexual assault charges from a woman who engaged in a threesome with Ziegler and his wife, who was a founder of the moralistic book burners association Mums for Liberty. And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free, without paywalls or constant fundraising, as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So, help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Chuck Collins, a senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies, where he directs the program on inequality and co-hosts Inequality.org. He's the author of Born on Third Base, One Percenter Makes the Case for Tackling Inequality, Is Inequality in America Irreversible? And his latest book is The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions. Welcome to Background Briefing, Chuck Collins.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Chuck. And on Tuesday, the Supreme Court is poised to hear the case Moore versus the United States, which is a preemptive strike against the possibility of a wealth tax that Senator Elizabeth Warren floated in her 2020 presidential campaign, that 2% wealth tax on Americans worth over $50 million. So given that we've learned about how Justice Alito and Thomas are so sympathetic, if that's the right word, to billionaires who they like to hang out with and get favors from. What's your expectation with this very conservative Supreme Court who seems to, at least members of it, seem to represent billionaires first and the rest of us last?
1: Well, it's, it's very concerning because uh, not only would this, you know uh, this ruling preempt future wealth taxes but it would sort of cast it kind of open a pandora's box of rolling back state and local and federal tax policies uh that tax unrealized capital gains and that's where the big wealth is the super wealthy are sitting on trillions of dollars of appreciated land real estate and you know business assets that is where the huge concentrations of wealth lie and uh, a negative more decision uh, would kind of throw it all into chaos. And it would undermine, the it would worsen inequality by undermining government's ability to tax substantial wealth.
0: But it's also would cut into revenue, which is already inadequate. I mean, that seems to be happening across the board with Republicans. For example, the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, is tying aid to Israel with cutting IRS enforcement. You know, you've got the billionaires like the Koch brother, that's the remaining one. He's put $5 billion of his stock into political action funds that him and his son Chase Operating, and they're following the same model that Leonard Leo created to get deploy his 1.6 billion dollars he got from a one billionaire, uh, where they came up with a scheme that avoided both capital gains and and gift taxes. So now the Koch brothers are following that, and then the the Senate Judiciary Committee then tries to subpoena. Leonard Leo to testify about his relationship with the Supreme Court members that I mentioned earlier, and the Republicans went crazy uh, on the, uh, led by Lindsey Graham as though the sky was falling. How dare you have Leonard Leo go public and explain how he takes care of billionaires and deploys billions of dark money into our politics?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we should all understand that These folks are working using their considerable wealth and power as, you know, the wealthiest people on the planet to shift tax obligations off themselves onto everyone else. Uh, You know, and when they win these tax cuts for the rich, uh, essentially the rest of us have to pick up the slack for caring for veterans or making investments in infrastructure, protecting the national parks, whatever the, you know. The bills will continue to be paid, but they will be paid not by everyone else, not the not the sort of ultra rich who have the greatest capacity to be able to pay these. You know, um, so yeah, they, they, they're they, you know they're using their power and influence their, the, and influencing the sh- the outcome of the Supreme Court. Obviously, several justices should recuse themselves from the more more uh, you know ruling because they have direct corporate ownership interests in companies whose taxes could could go down considerably uh, depending on how they rule.
0: So on yesterday's program, I covered the front page on the New York Times story about how dangerous uh, the FAA system of air traffic control Mm -hmm. is. Uh, I don't know whether you saw it, Chuck, but it's pretty alarming. And Airline travel is pretty miserable to begin with, but the idea that you have these overworked FAA airline traffic controllers, who many of whom are just burned out, take drugs and alcohol to numb the sheer panic they have, knowing that they have the lives of thousands and thousands of passengers in their hands with antiquated equipment and crowded skies and inadequate numbers of controllers... So you ask yourself, well, I understand why deregulation and why the lack of investment is because the priority of our Congress is to give tax breaks to billionaires. And billionaires, of course, have their own private jets, uh, so they don't care about crowded airports and the miserable fate of passengers being cancelled uh, over the holidays. But they do share the skies with the the rest of air, air travellers. So you'd think that at some point they would want an FAA that is functional so that their private jets don't crash into a you know, passenger airliner.
1: Well, it's true, and yet the private jets really don't chip in their fair share. Uh, we did a study in the summer, uh, high flyers, that looks at uh, private aviation and private jets included in that are one out of six flights, uh, which is about 16% of the airspace but they actually only chip in 2% of the actual operation of the air traffic system. So, um, you know, an easy remedy to the shortage is make private jets and private aviation pay their, pay their fair share of the use of the space. Uh, you know, they're essentially the rest of us, again, this is a familiar theme, the rest tax rest of us taxpayers and the traveling public are subsidizing private jet travel on a warming planet it just seems like a ridiculous uh thing to be asking the rest of us to chip in for um so yeah we could we could fund the the expansion and strengthening of the air traffic system if these private jets paid their fair share
0: so chuck let's talk about the swiss bank ubs's report that was released last thursday showing that there's a massive transfer of wealth underway from billionaire business founders to their heirs. And what this means is that the those that accumulated their fortunes through entrepreneurship are now turning the money over to family members uh, who simply, by an accident of birth, are becoming multi-billionaires. And the bank, UBS, is actually a friend of the super-rich. The study found that 53 heirs inherited $151 billion in wealth during the period between April 2020 and April 2023, which exceeded the $140.7 billion amassed by the billionaire entrepreneurs. So, so this next generation of billionaires who inherited the wealth just through an accident of birth as opposed to creating the wealth are now in the majority, and apparently they... less inclined to be charitable. It's altogether a pretty disgraceful picture. And what's missing here, of course, and what's lacking is a robust wealth and inheritance tax system, right?
1: Yeah, this is a really interesting study that UBS is doing. They're basically showing us that the so-called self-made billionaires uh, are transferring huge amounts of wealth and power down the generation line um, and that, that, you know, we're going to see that the emergence of these wealth dynasties, the children and grandchildren of today's billionaires are going to still be around. in in a hundred years, they're going to be dominating our politics and culture and philanthropy. And uh, you know, this is, this isn't a failure of our tax systems again. Uh, you know, in, in the past we've had substantial, um, You know, wealth tax, inheritance taxes, estate taxes, this is an example of, you know, the the U.S. estate tax, for instance, has become almost voluntary and porous in the face of this current increase in concentration of wealth. So uh, very, very little of this wealth is being taxed in the form of inheritance taxes uh, as previous generations it has. So it's clearly a failure of our ability to tax inherited wealth, um, which so much undermines democracy. And it's not surprising, second and third generation wealthy heirs tend to be very defensive. They invest in wealth defense. They try to keep, they hire the tax lawyers and wealth managers to protect their assets, move them into secret trusts and offshore tax havens and all the sort of wealth hiding uh, tools. Because They're not the first-generation entrepreneurs. They're not going to be making more money. The the first generation was really the wealth creator um, with probably a lot of public investment and support. But nonetheless, the the next generation, this is all they have, and they're going to build a wall around it to try to protect it.
0: Well, but it's very detrimental, though, isn't it, to philanthropy because you've got the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, and these other established foundations that have done an extraordinary amount of good uh, work over the decades, those things are becoming a thing of the past, right? Uh, they just want it, They don't want to pass the wealth on or sh- share the wealth. They, yeah, they, I mean,
1: I think we're, yeah, we're seeing more and more of these, I call them dynastic wealth foundations, where the foundations are sort of almost hoarding the wealth as well, uh, you know, some of it's flowing out, and some of it's doing good work. But more and more ultra wealthy people are, uh, to the extent they give anything to charity, they're creating, giving it to a private foundation they control, and it's dribbling out at a very, very slow pace. So even in that case, philanthropy may may not be the answer. But but what UBS is telling us is this next generation is even less charitably inclined. They're 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 going to just hold onto it for jets and yachts and excessive consumption, as well as, you know, political influence and power. And that should be alarming to us in any kind of semblance of a democratic society, that they, they, so few people should have so much power.
0: So the world is being divided between the have-nots and the have-yachts?
1: Pretty much, yeah. The have-yachts are uh, just seeing their wealth multiply. Uh, yeah, we're, we're very involved in our region and here in the Northeast United States trying to prevent, uh, airports from, you know, tripling their private jet capacity. There's such a demand for private jets among the ultra rich. So they can, they don't have to participate in the same commercial aviation system as the rest of us. They can just opt out and delink, link and have their own transportation system. Uh, so it's alarming all around this, this concentration of wealth and power and all the toys that are flowing to the ultra rich.
0: Yeah, but Bill Gates's father said you can't sail two yachts at the same time.
1: That's true. Well, Bill Gates's father was a different. He was a different generation and a different breed. He he understood extreme inequality was was bad for a healthy society. He was a big supporter of uh, a healthy uh, inheritance tax. You know, a U.S. estate tax, and really lobbied and went out in in support of it. So. Um, you know, there there are some billionaires who understand that if we just keep playing this out the way it's heading, it's not going to end well. And that uh, if you want to live in a healthy, democratic and a healthy economy, you can't have, you know, 740 billionaires uh, lording over the rest of us.
0: Well, in the latest edition of the Billionaires' Am- Ambitions Report from uh, UBS they found that the number of global billionaires rose by 7% during the one-year period, which was from April 2022 to April 2023, up from 2,376 to 2,544, and in the US alone had 750 billionaires as of April 2023, 20 more than it had in 2022. So. And given that this is being passed under the heirs, a, a new generation that didn't create the wealth but are going to protect it uh, and not be particularly charitable about sharing it, we are creating a new aristocracy, right? And, and not a particularly nice one. Not that any aristocracy is necessarily very nice, but people yeah, like no, the Queen of uh, England or less uh, Prince Charles. Yeah.
1: I guess we could say it's a less benevolent aristocracy, but yeah, I think that's that's the trend here. Is when you have in a society dominated by inherited wealth, billionaires with with multiple billions, it becomes a society ruled by wealth. And uh, here's a, here's an interesting statistic. I mean, you know, just in the U.S., uh, since 2017, when the Trump tax cut passed, U.S. billionaires have seen their wealth go up. $2.3 trillion. So combined, those 750 billionaires have $5.2 trillion of wealth, but it's almost doubled. It's more than doubled in in the years since the Trump tax cut went into effect. So it's a good example of the Trump tax cut has been very good to billionaires. And of course, that tax cut expires in 2025. So we have an opportunity to roll back some of these Uh, oligarch-friendly tax policies by letting them expire. But that's going to be a holy fight, as you can imagine. Um, But just to show, these tax policies have been great for billionaires, not so good for the rest of of us.
0: But if the Supreme Court rules in favor of the billionaires in Tuesday's uh, Moore versus the United States case, wouldn't that close the door on that possibility, doing something about... When the Trump tax cuts sunset in twenty twenty
1: five, it probably would affect what taxes uh, can be put in place. I, I think that, as I understand it, a inheritance tax, which is a passing wealth passing from one generation to another, would remain a taxable event. Uh, but you know, President Biden and others have put forward something called a billionaire income tax, where they tax the the unrealized capital gains of the billionaires, that would certainly not be possible under uh, the if the more decision strikes down certain types of taxes. Either way, uh, you know, taxes on the ultra wealthy have gotten more and more weakened over the last couple of decades, and that's what's going to be hard to re- reverse with a more decision.
0: But just in closing, though, Chuck. Why can't the Biden people and the, De- and the Democrats make it clear that at the end of the day this is all about revenues and uh, when the Republicans you know had a fit over Biden giving the IRS another 80 billion so that they could catch up with the very clever and highly paid wealth protection industry, of legions of accountants uh, so that they can at least have more of a playing field and bring in tons and tons of, uh, of money that's owed, you know, because the billionaires and the and the wealthy don't pay their taxes and the rest of us, ordinary stiffs, pay the bulk of it. And, and we're the ones that get ordered and not the billionaires because the IRS doesn't have the capacity to audit the billionaires, nor do they have the equipment or the skill set so at the end of the day, I can't believe that they're not making more hay out of them. I mean, the idea that Mike Johnson, the new speaker, is, wants to cut more money out of the IRS enforcement in order to uh, fund Israel's war in Gaza is obscene.
1: Yeah, I think that they, they you know, they they're, they're sort of trying to hold the line, but I think they have to, you know, make it more stark that the Republicans are acting like the party of the defenders of the tax cheats. Um, and even their, you know, former Republican tax commissioners and others have come out and said, look, you have to, we have to invest in the IRS's oversight. You just can't allow the ultra wealthy to become make taxes optional. And they have, as you said, Ian, they have this whole, you know, cadre of these wealth defense professionals who are just helping them design loopholes and create trusts and, Move move money to the shadows and dodge taxes, and uh, you know having a IRS that has the capacity to oversee that is absolutely essential right now. So uh, the Democrats need to hold the line and make it clear that you know we're not going to help ordinary taxpayers and we're going to weaken the tax code if the ultra rich can skip out and opt out all the time because they have the hired guns to do it. Uh, we need to have a strong IRS to oversee it. And, um, you know, that's the only that's a key ingredient in building a fair tax code and, and, and keeping this shift uh, of tax obligations, you know, off of low and middle income people. We're paying we're already paying our fair share. Our taxes get taken out of our paychecks, um, but it's the ultra rich who are gaming it and using these complicated games. And, and we need to have some people who can oversee that. And shut down the shell games that are happening,
0: and as individuals, we should stop admiring these people I mean Donald Trump being an example, even though he's a phony billionaire
1: that's yeah we we as a culture, I think we overly celebrate some of some of these uh excessive wealth cases, and uh you know I think we we need to um yeah shift our culture a bit when it comes to um you know, how much money we're we're encouraging the ultra wealthy to keep to maintain and the power that they've maintained in our society.
0: Well I thank you for joining us here today, Chuck Collins.
1: Thank you, Ian, for having me.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Chuck Collins, who's a senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies, where he directs the program on inequality and co edits inequality.org. And he's the author of Born on Third Base, A One Percenter Makes the Case for Tackling Inequality, Is Inequality in America Irreversible? And his latest book is The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining a proposed ban against anti-Semitism, pro-Nazi sympathies or Holocaust denial that was rejected by the Texas Republican Party's executive committee that was to be included in a resolution on Saturday to support Israel in its war with Hamas in Gaza. There's a place out on the edge of town, sir Rising above the factories and the fields Ever since I was a child, I can't remember The man mansion on the hill Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Robert Downen, who is a reporter at the Texas Tribune covering democracy and the threats to it, including extremism, disinformation, and conspiracies. His latest article at the Texas Tribune is, Texas GOP Executive Committee Rejects Proposed Ban on Associating with Nazi Sympathizers and Holocaust Deniers. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Downen.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And it's very puzzling to try and figure out how the Texas legislature could be working on a bill to support Israel in its war against Hamas in Gaza. And members of the Texas Republican Party, well, the executive committee of the Texas uh, Republican Party, basically rejected banning members who espouse or tolerate anti-Semitism and deny the Holocaust. So... You've obviously reported on this, so can you <laughs> help us try and navigate this paradox?
2: You know, I think um, I think it's a paradox that has confused quite a few people, including um, nearly half of the Texas GOP's leadership body, the Executive Committee. Um, but I think, you know, really to understand how we got here requires a little bit of background. So about two months ago, we uh, published photos of Nick Fuentes, who is a very famous white supremacist and Adolf Hitler admirer, who has called for um, a holy war against Jews um, and at least questioned if the Holocaust happened, we published photos of him um, at uh, at the offices of a very powerful, well-connected consulting firm for GOP candidates in the states, and that was kind of the genesis um, for. The debates that happened on Saturday, you know, there we have done plenty of reporting in in between that meeting and Saturday that shows that there were a lot of other links between these uh, very powerful fundraisers and groups within the Texas GOP and avowed white supremacists and anti-Semites. And so I think, you know, Saturday's vote was kind of the culmination of this ongoing squabble between the Texas GOP's governing body about how or if rather to even address these dual scandals, these various scandals involving their proximity to pretty open racists and um, avowed white supremacists.
0: So the vote was 32 to 29, right? And what they were excluding was, quote, uh, people that are known to espouse or tolerate anti-Semitism, pro-Nazi sympathies, or Holocaust denial. And I take it that a Republican member of the legislature, Strickland, he was seen with Nick Fuentes, wasn't he? Wasn't he photographed by the Texas Tribune?
2: So so uh, a few things. Um, Stickland is no longer a member of the legislature. He was for about 10 years the state representative. But since leaving the Texas House, he has been at the helm of a very, very powerful political action committee called uh, Defend Texas Liberty, which um, just since 2021 has given nearly 15 million dollars to far right candidates, politicians and movements in the state, including the Lieutenant Governor uh, Dan Patrick and Attorney General Ken Paxton, who are very close allies of the group. Um, and we publish, you know, we, don't, we do not have photos, I want to be clear, we do not have photos of Stickland and Fuentes hanging out together, but we know that Stickland met with him. Um, that has been confirmed. We have photos of Fuentes coming and going from the offices of Pale Horse Strategies, which is the consulting firm that Stickland owns. Um, Fuentes was there inside for about seven hours. Um, other than that, though, the, the political action committee, Stickland and his allies have really just gone completely silent on this entire scandal and in in you know it, amid that silence they've their allies have tried to hypothesize that this was all just a big misunderstanding a one-off mistake um, you know a serious blunder to quote one person um, it, 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 really in the absence of any explanation for the meeting um, you know there's been they a lot of allies of the group have Kind of filled the void with some pretty baseless speculation, and given them, you know, made it kind of muddied the waters enough where a vote like um, what happened on Saturday was kind of even up in the air going into it. So,
0: but the the fact that they voted uh, to allow members of the Texas Republican Party to be free to associate with Nazi sympathizers is just hard to believe. I mean, I know some of the uh, Democratic members have been attacking them for it. But why would they put an, this kind of noose around their necks? I mean, t- particularly at the time when they're debating how to support Israel in its war against uh, Hamas.
2: Sure. You know, I, I, again, I can't, it's, it's, I, I would, I I can't speculate on precise motivations um, other than what was said in the room on Saturday. And a lot of the debates uh, really centered around, you know, questions about what does anti-Semitism mean? What does it mean to be a Nazi sympathizer? What does it mean to be a Holocaust denier? Um, what does it mean to tolerate uh, people who espouse those views? I mean, it was a lot of just people debating, you know, word games rather than the substance of the issue. And, you know, I, I think there, a common... Um, you know, concern from people who were against the ban was that this would create a slippery slope and that they would be buying into what they described as, you know, Marxist leftist tactics of guilt by association. You know, I think that it's worth asking, um, you know, what that means that they are afraid that they could be found to be associating with Nazi sympathizers. But I think that that is a question that is on a lot of people's minds, including the 29 people who, Um, you know, did try to uh, approve this ban. Um, I think, you know, I think one of the uh, people who voted in in favor of the ban, I I think, you know, told me after the vote that they were just kind of shocked to hear their colleagues claiming that they could, it it is impossible to define anti-Semitism or other words. Um, The same people saying that are often the first to call people leftists, liberals, socialists, Communists, Republicans, in name only—you know—all of these different political buzzwords that they're more than happy and more than comfortable throwing at their political opponents. But when it comes to anti-Semitism, when their own ranks suddenly the uh, definition gets more, much more muddier. So,
0: well, surely uh, there isn't much ambiguity about who's a Nazi sympathizer, who's a white supremacist, and and who's a Holocaust denier. I mean, it's it's <laughs> <laughs> I, they're on pretty shaky grounds if they think there's there's no sort of universal understanding of what we're talking about here right you
2: know I, I mean I, I think that you know with respect to the term anti-semitism I I think that that is you know something that it's you true. know yeah. in part because of the political implicate because of the way it has been politicized is not as cut and dry and I understand that but I personally, you know, I I guess to to quote other members, it, it is much less of a muddy or ambiguous conversation when we're talking about outright Holocaust denial or Nazi sympathies. Um, so, yeah, I think that, that that the fact that not even that language was something that uh, passed on Saturday, I think, was pretty shocking to both members of the Texas GOP who wanted the ban and, you know, others who um, had assumed that something like this would would be uh really wouldn't face much opposition
0: so you were mentioning uh, strickland the former uh, member of the legislature who's got a is there now a republican kingmaker right sure and his yep, association
2: a, a perfect way to describe him yes
0: right and he's close to the very controversial attorney general right ken paxton
2: yes i, I am not only i would you know to say that they are close i think would be a, a drastic understatement in june we ahead of a uh, impeachment trial, we wrote a detailed thing describing how um, the people who, do, who back, who, who have financed Stickland's entire political career, career um, these two, or rather a trio of West Texas oil billionaires, they are also by far and away Ken Paxton's biggest political donors. I think they've given nearly twice as much to him over the course of his career as um, his second largest donor. Um, and they've also, you know, given this summer, gave $3 million to Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, Um, And Defend Texas Liberty and these West Texas oil billionaires have have for more than a decade now subsidized Ken Paxton's political career. Um, They were the kind of tip of the spear in the public relations campaign against his impeachment this summer and going into September. And I think, you know, it's really hard to overstate just how inextricably tied uh, Ken Paxton's political livelihood is to this group that is now at the subject of these dual, well, I guess, myriad controversies and scandals involving Nick Fuentes and other anti-Semitic figures.
0: But the failed impeachment of Paxton by his own party was unbelievably puzzling because the evidence that that was presented there was just was devastating. I mean, Bill Clinton, then president, was impeached for so much less than the evidence that was presented at uh, trial for uh, against uh, The very controversial attorney general of the state, Ken Paxton, who, as far as I know, is still under investigation for securities fraud.
2: You know, I I don't think that you're alone in feeling that way. And I I think it's, you know, impeachment at the end of the day is a, a political, it was a political trial with political implications. And, you know, we will see. Um, if or how that shakes out, you know, the same evidence shakes out, um, or I guess you know, debate rather shakes out in a more formal, non-political uh, venue. So,
0: right. What isn't there also a connection with Elon Musk? Hasn't he taken a lawsuit to a a very conservative judge in Texas, who's also close to Paxton?
2: I I, I believe, and and I don't, you know, I'm not one thousand percent on the details of this, but yes, Elon Musk. Um, recently filed a lawsuit against media matters for america media watchdog. yes and and the reason being that media matters put out a report showing that um you know reporting that twitter had been putting major advertisers' advertisements next to um <laughs> some pretty uh, volatile content um, now and, Nazi
0: content right it's yeah, yeah yes, yes, uh, yes. Yeah.
2: um and and i think that uh you know uh Elon Musk uh, I believe sued Media Matters. Um two of the people who are working on um that lawsuit with him privately are alums, recent alums of the Attorney General's office and then Ken Paxton separately announced some sort of investigation into Media Matters um, I believe the same day. So yeah, I mean there is a lot of you know, the the, the link the you you are one or two um dots away, you know, connecting People yeah. like Nick Fuentes to defend liberty to Attorney General and Elon Musk. So,
0: Right. And it's worth noting, of course, that Nick Fuentes uh, was hosted by Donald Trump last year at Thanksgiving, along with Kanye West.
2: Yes, he dined at Mar-a-Lago. And after, after that meeting, you know, Trump... Came out and said that he didn't even know who Nick Fuentes is, and that again, that meeting was roundly criticized by national GOP or you know national politicians. Um, but again, I think that it's also worth noting that Fuentes and his allies, their their um, ties within the GOP more broadly, are, are go go much further than Stickland or or uh, Donald Trump. I mean, you had Representatives Paul Gosar as well as Marjorie Taylor Greene have both spoken at uh, um, Fuentes's annual conference. And it seems like every month or two, there's a new report about some of Fuentes's acolytes finding their ways onto GOP campaigns. Um, you know, it, earlier this year, Ron DeSantis' presidential campaign was forced to fire somebody um, who was a follower of Fuentes' movement because they made a video showing people marching to a nazi rad uh as part of a DeSantis viral video. Um, you know, these, these people are have found their way into the political mainstream at a pretty alarming. Rate and you know, for all the pronouncements on being pro-Israel and anti-Semitism or, or and anti anti rather, um, a lot in the GOP, a lot of people in the GOP just I don't think have shown a real stomach to actually ousting people who are rabidly anti-Semitic um, from the ranks.
0: So, th- does the Democratic m- minority in the state legislature also in pointing out? They've obviously, you know, they quoted in your article and in an article at uh, also at the Guardian, members of Texas Republican Party free to associate with Nazi sympathizers. In fact, they put forward uh, this language, didn't they, about those known to espouse or tolerate anti-Semitism, pro-Nazi sympathies, or Holocaust denial. So, is the debate down there also reaching the kind of or in sync with the national? debate that's starting to emerge about Trump himself having Nazi sympathies, and uh, of course Liz Cheney has a new book out that's just coming out, and she's made the statement which has pretty much gone viral, and that is that uh, we, meaning us here in America, are sleepwalking into dictatorship.
2: You know, I think that the debate in in you know in just the last two months in Texas has really. I mean, I should be clear. You know, the 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 debate in, uh, often in Texas is not. You know, there's obviously a a vibrant Democratic Party here, but when it but the you know the big headlines are typically coming uh, regarding debates within the Republican Party itself. Um, the, the, the Texas GOP itself, um, something that I think was mirrored at the during the vote this weekend. And but with respect to you know how this has played out on a more or partisan basis. I think there's been a tendency amongst the Texas GOP to in the wake of the Fuentes scandal to hold up their support for Israel to point to, you know, the the prominent figures um, who have named who are named Friends of Israel and who have donated and been involved with the Israeli government. And, I, you know, I think I, I mean, meanwhile, they have uh, often shied away from um, From condemning by name people who have, who met with Fuentes or who are, you know, tied to anti Semitic figures while also at the same time being more than willing to. Attack the state Democratic Party for um, statements made by national Democratic figures who are live and represent districts halfway across the country. And we saw that again this weekend with this resolution. I mean, the same day, I believe that the Texas GOP declined to take up this ban. The uh, Texas Democratic Party passed a resolution calling for a humanitarian ceasefire um, and also saying in the language, I believe um, that, you know, that it that condemning, you know, very strongly Hamas. Um, but that didn't stop some in the Texas GOP from trying to deflect from the vote. This their, their own, you know, the vote on this uh, ban. Uh, they've been trying to deflect by saying like, oh well, why isn't the Democratic Party getting the same amount of attention because they quote unquote supported Hamas? Now that's not what was passed by the Democratic Party, um, but again, that's kind of the state of the discourse here, where it's it's uh, some in the Texas GOP being much more interested in looking outward at those across the, or across the political aisle um, rather than looking inward at the very real anti-Semitism problem that is festering within their own ranks.
0: Well, Robert Downen, I thank you so much for joining us here today.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Robert Downen, who is a reporter at the Texas Tribune covering democracy and the threats to it, including extremism, disinformation and conspiracies. His latest article to Texas Tribune is Texas GOP Executive Committee rejects proposed ban on associating with Nazi sympathizers and Holocaust deniers. We can take a brief station break back discussing the exploding scandal in Florida that has Governor Ron DeSantis asking his friend Christian Ziegler, the chair of Florida's GOP, to step down due to sexual assault charges from a woman who engaged in a threesome with Ziegler and his wife, who was a founder of the moralistic book burners organization Mums for Liberty.
1: Long star belt buckles and old faded Levi. Tonight begins a new day If you don't understand him he don't die you
0: You'll probably just ride away Mamas, Don't let your babies grow up to be
1: Cowboys
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing available 24/7 at backgroundbriefing.org and joining us now is Timothy Canova, who's a professor of law and public finance at Nova Southeastern University College of Law in Florida, who teaches corporations regulation of international financial institutions, international trade and development law, and the history of economic thought. He was an early critic of financial deregulation and warned of the dangers of the bubble economy in 2011. And Timothy Canova was appointed by Senator Bernie Sanders to serve on an advisory committee on Federal Reserve reform form. Welcome to Background Briefing, Timothy Canova.
3: Thank you. Nice to be with you.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And I wanted to talk to you, since you're in Florida, about a somewhat different subject from our previous conversations, Timothy, and that is the scandal gripping the Florida Republican Party, whose chairman apparently is being charged with sexual assault by a woman who he'd known for some 20 years Who had engaged, previously engaged in a threesome with uh, Christian Ziegler, the chair of the Florida GOP, and his wife Bridget, who was a founder of Moms for Liberty, the moralistic uh, book burners. So I know there's been some peculiar scandals down in Florida and going back to political (laughs) problems like the butterfly ballots and you name it, but this one seems to top it all. What's the local reaction down there since Governor Ron DeSantis, who's very close friends with Christian Ziegler and his wife, Bridget, has apparently had to tell his friend to step down, although I believe Ziegler is not stepping down. Is that right? Uh, As of
3: now, I don't think he has stepped down. Uh, The pressure on him to step down is mounting, of course. Uh, My... Uh, understanding is that a complaint was filed against him with the Sarasota Police Department. Uh, I have not heard of an actual arrest occurring yet. Uh, the, the complaint alleged sexual battery, including rape. Uh, so at this point, it's it's allegations and nothing more. I, I'm, I'd imagine the police are investigating and maybe an arrest will be uh, forthcoming. Uh, Christian Ziegler has you know, uh, denied the allegations, and uh, as you correctly mentioned, Governor Ron DeSantis has said uh, he hasn't said he believes the allegations. What he said is that the the Florida Republican Party uh, is at a critical stage right now, and it needs to be led with someone who doesn't have this kind of a cloud over his head. Uh, was basically what he has said.
0: Well, it's uh, quite a cloud, though, isn't it? I mean is there any discussion in Florida about the apparent hypocrisy of being one of the founders of Moms for Liberty which is a very right wing group very moralistic believe that uh, you know a lot of perfectly harmless books have to be taken off the shelves uh, because they have sexual content or stuff that maybe has to do with race relations and gender issues that they've in their moralistic world see to be a problem, yet in their private behavior, they're hardly paragons of virtue.
3: Well, like I said, these are allegations and nothing more than allegations in a, in a criminal complaint at this point. Uh, yes, there have been uh, voices in Florida uh, pointing out the hypocrisy uh, uh, if, if these allegations are proven true. Uh, I think those who are, uh, talking about hypocrisy, already uh, are convinced the allegations are true. <laughs> maybe because they have political uh, incentives to uh, uh, forget the presumption of innocence and and uh, declare someone guilty before proven true. Uh, but that's the world we live in, where uh, you know certainly it's easy to make an allegation and maybe even something to be gained by making an allegation that might not be completely true or might be uh, made up uh, out of uh, whole cloth. Uh, one never knows. And I, I don't personally want to prejudge the case. Uh if it's uh if there's truth to it, I, I would hope that the criminal justice system will uh will work and bring charges against uh Ziegler for uh, not just sexual misconduct, but the allegations are again, uh sexual assault and rape. Uh but yes, there you certainly get people who are uh calling out uh this as hypocrisy. Uh, But as you can expect, it's mostly partisan. Um, uh, I I think there's been more quiet in Republican circles. And uh, and yet the heat was rising uh, so that uh, it's not that surprising, I suppose, that uh, DeSantis uh, came out to uh, say what he did to try to push Ziegler out at this point. Uh, It's certainly while he's running for president, it, it, it just creates another headache for Ron DeSantis.
0: Well, apparently from the affidavit that the police have, it says that the victim had arranged with Ziegler to meet with him and his wife at a hotel for another assignation. Then she found out that the wife, Bridget, wasn't going to show up, and she canceled the date with Ziegler. And then Mm -hmm. he then later showed up at her apartment and forcibly... Uh, assaulted and raped her. So that's the sequence of events that he's charging. But
3: I, I've looked at the complaint online, and it doesn't tell us much because um, you have redactions there, and almost everything in the complaint has been redacted out and uh, except the words raped, raped, stated that, and stated. So, mm. um, yeah, I, I, I honestly don't know what I should believe at this point, and, and I, I do hope the criminal justice system works mm. on this.
0: Right. Well, the, the the details that I was reciting come from a, an article in the New York Times on Sunday. Mm-hmm. But in terms of DeSantis, he's not doing very well. He's put all of his eggs in the one basket in Iowa, mm-hmm. and that's his only chance, I think. And I think Trump is, what, 40 points ahead in Iowa, even though, as I say, DeSantis has thrown his entire lot in to try and win Iowa.
3: Yes, uh, that my understanding is Trump is 35 to 40 points ahead in in Iowa. And I I agree with your assessment that Iowa has been seen as a make or break state for DeSantis. Uh, I uh, heard today that there's a shakeup in the DeSantis campaign and he has uh, left uh, uh, one super PAC for another or created another. I'm not sure of the details. I just uh, briefly heard uh, some
0: something about that. So he started out with quite a bang though didn't he and um raised an
3: awful lot of money raised an awful lot of money, and of course uh riding on the coattails of a rather uh, large win for re-election in Florida, where, uh, you know, he won by quite a sizable margin. I think it might be the, the highest percentage of a re-election for a governor in Florida history. So between that and raising tens of millions, really more than $100 million so, so quickly, uh, yeah, he, he started off with quite a bang and has gone down ever
0: since. So does that mean there's always been less than meets the eye with him?
3: Well, his critics would certainly say so. And (laughs) he was he was locked in a very tough uh, primary fight in 2018 uh, with uh, I believe it was our agriculture uh, uh, secretary here in Florida who was ahead uh, ahead of DeSantis. DeSantis was a former congressman, had just stepped down to run for governor, and he was not doing well in the polls until he got an endorsement from Donald Trump. And that's what really shifted things for him. He was able to win that primary and then a very, very close election over the Democrat, uh, Andrew Gillum, in the fall of uh, 2018.
0: And Trump, of course, has continued to remind uh, DeSantis of that, that he endorsed him.
3: Well, you know, and one can't really blame Trump for doing that, because I'll tell you, in his re-election campaign, DeSantis had TV commercials where he was— Uh, I think reading uh, from the art of the deal to his uh, one of his children or both of his children uh, like under the Christmas tree or something like that. So uh, he was certainly trying to uh, uh, brag about his MAGA credentials back then.
0: Right. No, I I saw those commercials uh, with him and his wife and the kids. He was slavishly uh, pro-Trump. So what's the other story, though, that came out today in Florida to do with the Democratic Party?
3: Well, it came out, um, I think, late last week. And that's that Nikki Freed, the chair of the Democratic Party in Florida, uh, announced that there would be no Democratic primary for president in Florida, uh, that uh, Joe Biden was the man and um, they would just not have a primary. And, of course, there are some Democratic Party candidates, Marion Williamson, and uh, I'm not quite sure who else is running at this point. And while they are considered fringe candidates, uh, very, very low in the polls, uh they uh they have uh criticized this decision by the Florida Democratic Party and one does wonder why the party would do that uh, it it really uh i suppose shows a lack of confidence in in Biden actually uh, maybe a a fear that there could be just a an anti-Biden protest vote in Florida and uh and Biden certainly has his hands full with some of the natural Democratic constituencies in Florida, Um, certainly coming from Jewish quarters. He's roundly criticized for not standing up sufficiently for Israel during this latest war with Hamas. Uh, So one doesn't know exactly what the motivation of the Florida Democratic Party is, but it really is, um, I think, a tradition in Florida that the Democratic Party uh, likes to put its finger on uh, elections. And that goes back, of course, to the notorious Debbie Wasserman Schultz from 2016, uh, albeit she was acting in her capacity as chair of the Democratic National Party, putting her thumb on the scales uh, for Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders. And in that year, 2016, I challenged her in a Democratic primary, uh, which uh, was a very strange primary. We raised almost four million dollars, and uh, we thought we had her at the end. Uh, we asked to see the paper ballots. Uh, we had to. We were forced to sue to try to inspect the paper ballots. And um, the Broward Supervisor of Elections promptly destroyed every ballot cast, which were felonies. And and a court ruled in our favor, found uh, it it wasn't a hard finding to make. The Broward Supervisor of Elections admitted to the destruction of ballots, and yet not arrested, uh, not indicted, not investigated, even by Florida Republicans, including DeSantis. So it really suggests that here in Florida, you have very much a uniparty kind of a political system where they carve out the map and um, there are Democratic areas where the Republicans will look the other way with how they conduct their elections, as sketchy as they might be. And the Democrats sort of leave other parts of Florida for Republicans to uh, rig their primaries against insurgents as well.
0: So why would they have destroyed the ballots unless you won, mm-hmm. right?
3: <laughs> that's that's my point exactly, Ian. My point exactly. And uh the day before my primary, this was in two thousand sixteen, the local NBC affiliate had up on its website a preview of the next day's primaries, uh the, the next day's primary elections. And, you know, for all the positions, county commissioner, sheriff of Broward County, they were all zeroed out because no ballots had been counted yet. But for my race, they had Wasserman Schultz beating me by something like 16 percentage points with 69 percent of precincts reporting. So we took screenshots. We called up the NBC affiliate, asked what was going on. They took down. (laughs) They took that down from their website, but they never gave an explanation. And our internal field numbers showed showed us actually winning by the end. And of course, Wasserman Schultz had made herself a very toxic figure in the Democratic Party. And we had the endorsement of Bernie Sanders at that point. We had raised an awful lot of money and had four field offices. It was quite believable that we were pulling away at the end. So the next day, the polls close, and they have Wasserman Schultz defeating us by that same exact percentage that the day before they had previewed wrongly. So mm-hmm. it was for that reason that I didn't concede. And and I and the days that followed, there were an awful lot of... Uh, Uh, election analysts that were contacting me from around the country to tell me about statistical anomalies and uh, cumulative voter tallies that were uh, statistically impossible. And I'm not a statistician, so I didn't know what to believe, but I thought, well, let's inspect the paper ballots. Uh, We'll start off with a dozen key precincts and if they match up, I'll concede. So that was my motivation was let's verify the vote. Uh, I, I, you know, there were a lot of conspiracy theories that were, were circulating around immediately um, in the aftermath of that election. And I wanted to put them to rest and I wanted, you know, to verify for my own peace of mind. And when they threw out every ballot cast, what's the inferences that you you draw from that. And yet when they get away with that and there's no investigation, it's no longer an indictment just of the election system. It becomes an, an indictment of the criminal justice system itself.
0: Right. Well, it's so brazen. So just in closing, though, uh, back to you mentioned Biden is is being hurt by the Jewish vote in Florida. I mean, Mm -hmm. obviously, Wasserman Schultz is zealously pro-Israel. But Biden has been so pro-Israel. He flew over there immediately to show his solidarity. He's getting hit from the Democratic left by the young Democrats. I'm surprised that the conservative older Democrats in Florida are coming down on him.
3: Well, I think he's getting hit by both sides. And I think part of it is that he's trying to please both sides. You've had Blinken who's going over to Israel and, uh, you know, some of the headlines are that he's trying to rein in Israel and tell Israel that uh, they've got to uh, uh, basically start pivoting to a political two state solution. Whereas, you know, Israelis want to destroy Hamas after what happened on October 7th. And um, and there are a lot of uh, Jews um I wouldn't say all conservative Jews uh, in the United States. I'd say a lot within the Democratic Party um, who are upset and and maybe directing some of their anger at Biden for things that others on the left in the Democratic Party are saying. Um, What's perceived as justifications for what happened on October 7th.
0: Well, Timothy, I thank you for joining us um, and for telling us about uh, how you really won an election uh, that uh, was stolen from you. Well, we'll <laughs> never know. We won't, Of uh, course we'll it, never know, but it shows sure uh, how yeah. it looks like you won. I so, uh, thank well, you for joining us. Thank you. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews, searchable by topic, and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The
1: guy
2: that the